Alrighty, so in today's uh, little throwback episode, uh, this is the third installment of the throwback series. Uh, I've, we've got an interview that uh, I conducted with Scott Iper uh, from nature for You, uh, talking about uh, venomous snake keeping and uh, plenty of other bits and pieces uh, reptile-wise. Scott is a wealth of knowledge and I uh, cannot thank him enough for sharing some of his uh, knowledge in this episode. Obviously, again, this is, as I've said every time, this is a few years old, um, so some of the content in here may or may not have changed, particularly when we're talking about some of the scientific side of things. Um, but if you uh, want to see more of what Scott gets up to, uh, Scott and his wife, Ty, uh, then check out Nature For You. Uh, they're a fantastic resource of information uh, and they've authored uh, plenty of books between the two of them as well. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, as I said, we'll get into the episode. Hope you enjoy. Thanks, guys. So then we're good to go. <sighs> Hello, how are you? Good, how are you going? Yeah, good, good. All right. So today we are talking to Scott Iper from Nature For You. Um, he's written books. He's kept pretty much all the vens. Um, all right, let's get into it. So how did the reptile obsession for you begin? Um, fairly hard to, to put it down to one thing. Essentially what it was is that I've always worked with, with critters since I was a young kid and got... <laughs> got into it and, and never stopped. So essentially never got out of grabbing lizards and, and stuff like that as a real young kid. And then a little bit older um, was chasing things like snakes and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, I've seen on a few different things that you've mentioned, the VHS really helped you along with that and doing it all right. Um, how did that all start? how did you get into that? Yeah, when I was, oh, it was either nine or ten years old, I think, for memory. Um, my parents got in contact with the VHS and I went along to a meeting. And I think my first meeting was, well, I would have been nine because my first meeting I went to was in 19, uh, 1990. So, um, you know, I was, I was nine years old back in 1990 when that was on. So, um and I saw a bloke by the name of Angus Martin speaking. Um, and then sort of through that, I got to know Brian Barnett. He um, was the subject of a hell of a lot of phone calls from a very keen young young herpo back then. Um, and, you know, people like Brian were, were sort of instrumental in, in my, my younger teens um, and encouraged me as opposed to discouraged me when it comes to to working and keeping keeping uh, reptiles, including venomous snakes. Yeah. All right. So uh, the beginnings of nature for you, how did that start? And where, where um, would that start? Yeah, I, I started doing demonstrations with a, a bloke in Victoria by the name of Fred Rosignoli. Um, Fred was a, um, he's a colourful character, I suppose is a good way of describing him, but, but a very, very astute, Hand, uh, venomous snake handler, um, free handled pretty much every, anything and everything, um, and used to do the the Royal Melbourne Show, and you know from the 
he was doing them in the early 90s right through to the mid-2000s. He was doing the shows. And as a young fella, I'd go along and help him, a bit like yourself, how you help out uh, Chris Humphrey and, and Co doing demos. I used to help Fredo. And, you know, you'd, you'd jump in the snake pit there and the, the snake pit, you'd walk around in a pair of socks uh, because you didn't want to step on the snakes. Now, the snakes that we had in the pit were all venomous. Um, we had some pythons there that we let the public touch, but um, we were basically dealing with venomous snakes the whole time. And I've always loved venomous snakes. That's always been a big passion of mine. And they probably are my favourite uh, reptiles. Um, and so at a young age, I was, was mucking around with venomous stuff and I had venomous stuff here at, at home as well. And, and so nature for you ended up being what, uh, what the business that, that me and my partner formed to do demonstrations here in Queensland. Um, I, in 2005, I moved to Queensland from Melbourne. Um, it also happened to be the year that I had a, a pretty significant bite um, from a, a medically insignificant snake um, where I went into anaphylactic shock and that changed my handling style um, quite considerably. So I, I moved away from uh taking liberties with animals and i think there was two things that happened i grew up a bit and secondly um that that anaphylaxis sort of scared the shit out of me too so yeah um so nature for you started so it was doing demos initially um and also doing training as well so explaining to people in in industry how to to work with venomous snakes and um uh, to minimize problems with um, occupational health and safety issues. Um, I've always written as well uh, and, and took photos and so the, the business was also a way of um, that I could get some tax write-offs in regards to taking photos and going on field trips and, and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And uh, what has nature for you become now? What other things have you added to that list of things um, we still do demos, um, you know, kids' birthday parties and fates and school fates and venomous shows and uh, training, still do all that sort of stuff. Um, we also do uh, a lot of site visits and stuff like that. So we'll do occupational health and safety assessments um, to look at uh, suitability of, of venues, um, instruction of staff and things like that on what to do when they see a snake. Um, put together action plans and management plans for, for dealing with snakes in the workplace. Um, and then on top of that, as well as, as doing that emergency removals. But, you know, I, I used to try and get snakes out of houses whenever we could, but now I, I try to talk myself out of work as much as possible. I, the last thing I want to do is pull a snake out of a house um, as soon as I pull a snake out of a house, I've got to put that snake somewhere and I've got to put that snake, relocate that animal into suitable habitat. The problem with that is, is that trying to find suitable habitat that isn't already occupied by uh, snakes in that, that environment. Um, and so it's not just as simple as catching a snake out of a person's house, taking it down the road and, and releasing it into some suitable um, bushland you've got to make sure that, that the animal's going to survive, it's going to do, do what it needs to do. And the best place for that animal to survive is where it was already living in the first place. So what I find better is to put the sales hat on and, 
and try and explain to people that it's much better to have that carpet python living in their backyard uh, or that tree snake living in their yard or don't worry about that eastern brown snake. He's only going to be there in your yard for an hour or so, a couple of hours, a day or so. He'll eat a few rodents for you and he'll be on his merry way. So um, people don't like the idea of having dangerously venomous snakes in their house. Um, and I can understand that. But if we can train people to live with these things as opposed to having to try and always move them, it's a much better solution. It's a better solution for the people because they don't have any cost involved and they, it's also a better solution for the snakes because the snakes aren't being relocated. Yeah. When you look at translocation studies of reptiles in Australia um, and around the world, translocation effectively doesn't work um, for, for the moving, moving of problem reptiles. Um, there's been some, some studies that have been done that have shown almost 100% mortality within six months. Um, hopefully there's going to be a couple more studies that will be kicking off to give us some better data um, in regards to that. Um, but certainly studies that happen in the US, the studies that have happened in Asia and studies that have happened here have all shown pretty abysmal signs of um, uh, for animals that are relocated. Um, so consequently, the, the question almost needs to be asked is that if we remove a snake out of a house, where is the most benefit for that animal to go? Is it to, is it better off going into a museum collection? Is it better off going into, um, uh, dare I say, a captivity or, or something along those lines? Um, or are we best off really sort of explaining to people that we should be leaving these animals where they are? Yeah, we can come out, we can remove that animal out of your house, Okay, but then we were releasing it in the, in, the, in the backyard. So the animal isn't getting translocated. It's literally just getting moved from one location to another within the premises or within the property. Um, the, the problem with having, dumping them in museums is museums don't want them. They're, they're not going to want 5,000 carpet pythons or, or 2,000 tree snakes. That's just a waste of their resources. Um, the, the pet tray can only sustain so many animals as well. So they're not going to want hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals. Um, so it's a, it's a real problem. And I think that at the end of the day, the problem that needs to be dealt with is to deal with it by educating people to live with snakes as opposed to um, just moving them on. And so nature for you, in a sense, when we, we're doing our demonstrations and stuff like that, we're, we try to, whenever we can, to educate the public about methods and things that they can do to uh, live with snakes as opposed to uh, trying to move them on. Um, the Nature View does free IDs. Okay, we do free identifications for people. Um, and that's our way of, of giving that initial contact. So they call us and then, sorry, one second, someone's just bloody contacting me. Hang on a second. Uh, one second. Sorry about this. Um, it never stops. It never stops. <laughs> um, right, close that bloody thing. Um, and so the reality of it is, is that if I can, you know, if I can explain to people that that animal's harmless, or it's next to harmless, or it's only a, it's not going to hurt hurt people. Um, and they end up leaving the animal where it is, that's a, a win for them. Um, it's a win for them in that they're not 
getting charged to have a snake removed from their property. It's a win for me that I don't need to move an animal. I don't, I don't particularly like moving animals. Um, yeah. Financially, it's, it's not really viable either um, as, from a business point of view. Um, most people up here charge about $99, I suppose, to pull a snake out of a house. Um, if you work on half an hour's labour to get to the get to the venue, half an hour to capture the animal, half an hour to release it, half an hour for paperwork, you're, you're then selling yourself out at about sort of 25 bucks an hour. Um, I don't work for $25 an hour and a lot of people don't these days. Um, by that, you've also got to take your expenses out, your tax out, um, licensing, paperwork, all the headaches that are going to go with it. You don't make any money out of it. So again, it's much off. It's much better if you can leave the animals where they are. Yeah. And um, one of the, some of the things that nature for you also, the, I guess, sales side of that with, you know, the books and the yeah, shirts. The books. how did that all come about? Um, well, you know, we got, we got asked by, um, someone made a comment to Ty actually about, um, oh, there's no decent bloody reptile shirts out there and, and they take too long and, you you know, you, you're getting them from overseas and this, that, other. And we thought, oh, well, we can give it a crack and see what we can come up with. And so um, we we ended up doing the – we already had some contacts for Australian printers and stuff like that. I was taking the photos anyway. And so Ty would, would take the photos or I would take photos. She would then sit in Photoshop for bloody hours and hours and hours, meticulously cutting them out, um, and then being able to then put put them on onto shirts or mugs or, or, or whatever the case may be. Um, we had them at a price point that I think about twenty five bucks each that they were retailing for. That we were making a few dollars on it, but we weren't making a lot and a lot of money for the for the effort that we weren't making a lot of money for the effort that Ty was putting in. Um, and essentially it was a business decision to, to, to move the shirts, move away from doing the shirts because everyone would say, yeah, I want to buy lots of shirts. And then essentially most people would buy a shirt or we want a shirt that's got a botched blue tongue or, or no, you don't have, you haven't got a central blue tongue or you haven't got a, a kangaroo island tiger snake. You haven't got a Western tiger. Why don't you do this one? Why don't you do Fuck with only so many hours in the day. So um, we we ended up sort of making the decision that we don't have time. Um, and so we, we left that away. Um, in regards to the writing and stuff like that, I've always done uh, – I've always been a big proponent of dissemination of information. And so I started – I published my first paper um, in about 2000, I think it was. In, in one of the herb journals um, and subsequently I've, I've published about 20, 22, 23 papers I think it is now on articles um, and I've done four books currently and then there's another one that's in the wings. Um, the, the books came about by uh, getting in contact, uh, I got contacted by a, a mate of mine up here who's doing a, who'd been contacted to do a lizard lizard series and he he'd, uh, he knew I kept venomous snakes and um, he goes, oh, would you be interested? And I said, oh, yeah, maybe. Um, let's have a chat. And we had a chat about it and, you know, long story short, the um, 
that's how the guide two series came out with regards to the the Alapids and the and the Colubrids and a, a really good mate of mine, um, Adam Elliott down in Melbourne. He um, well, he's in Ballarat, out the back of Ballarat these days. But uh, down in Vic, there he um, ended up doing the, the pythons and the turtles. Um, well, I did Alapids and Colubrids, and I also did frogs, and then. Um, Danny did the, the rest of the series with the exception of health and disease. So um, that was a, a big learning curve. Um, it, it's one thing to talk about writing a book. It's another thing to write the write the book and it's another thing to peer review it and get it peer reviewed. And, um, you know, it's a pretty, pretty gut-wrenching thing to have your first comments back on a peer review and you've, you spit your blood, sweat and tears and you think she's right and, and they go right. You need to change this, 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 this. It's it's pretty gut wrenching. So, um, but a good peer review is 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 incumbent on 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 good work because if you have good peer reviewers and strong peer reviewers, they they are going to pick the holes in in what you're doing. They're going to make the right suggestions, and from that, then you then you go from there. So, um, the the next series of books that I've I was working on was the. Uh, I sent some images in for a, a publication on the reptiles of Australia um, that was being authored by Peter Rowland and, and Chris Farrell. And I struck up a bit of a conversation with Peter and, and next thing you know, um, he goes, oh, well, the, 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 the publishers are interest, really interested in the Frogs of Australia book. And I was like, oh, okay. He goes, how, how many species are there? And I said, oh, there's about 238 or so. I said we can we can have a look at it. He goes, oh well. He goes, well they'll want to do every single one. They'll want a photo of every single one. I'm like, oh, bloody hell. All right, but they want to do a dangerous creatures book first. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I reckon I can do that. That's no no dramas. And so we, Peter and I, set a a plan up together to do the dangerous creatures book. Um, I did the the vertebrates. He did the the invert. Um, put together a, a plan and. Next thing you know, the Dangerous Creatures book was born, and and um, while I was finishing the Dangerous Creatures book off, um, I started on the Frog book, and then finished the Frog book. Um, and as I was finishing the Frog book off, I, I am still a glutton for punishment, and I spoke to the publisher and said, "How about a snake book?" And he goes, "That sounds great." Um, and so uh, the snake book's been born. Um, that has been submitted for the second round of, of proofs now. Um, so essentially what happens is, is you write the book in a, in a word format. Um, you'll send that word format out to your peer reviewers. In the case of the snake book, we've had uh, six peer reviewers um, that, that have read the book um, and they've all came back with a, with a heap of comments. Um, it, and then from that, you in, you incorporate their, their comments. Um, generally speaking, most of the comments that, that you get are, are usually very good um, and constructive. And it might be regarding clarification on, on certain points where you just haven't been as clear as you probably should have been. Um, and so you'll go through, you'll fix that up, um, and then you send it off. And then they'll, you'll send it off with all the photos all of the um, the tables and information that goes along with it, and that all goes to the designers. And then you don't hear anything usually for a, a month or two, and then suddenly they send you back this this PDF of a book that's 
sort of what they think is pretty close to being complete and they've completely fucked things up and you've got to go through and fix things again. Um, and it's very hard to read your own work. Um, and so you, you end up skim reading bits and pieces and you got to, I, I prefer to do it by, by print. So I literally print out the, the manuscripts and I'll write all over the manuscripts and, and go from there. Um, and so it's, it's worked out quite well. Um, the book's taking shape quite well. It's got photos of every species of, of Australian snake, um, every subspecies of Australian snake. Um, and, you know, with that, we've, we know that there's a few things that are on their way uh, in regards to some taxonomic changes that are happening to, to Australian reptiles. Um, and so we're, we've got our fingers crossed a little bit that, um, that a couple of these name changes don't come out in the interim between the book being finished and and the book being um, being printed. I mean, we it's invariable that things are going to be uh, named and uh, there'll be new taxa that's out there. Um, but the longer that, that takes, the better for us. We want the book to be as current as possible. So... Um, it's, it's, look, I'm really happy with it. It's, there's lots and lots of new photos in there. Um, the, there's 239 entries, I suppose, between species and subspecies. Um, a lot of those things I, I ended up getting, I mean, I had photos, I had a lot of photos of stuff myself, uh, but I also did visits to, to three museums um to see things as well so i had to go to the west australian museum to look at blind snakes um and sea snakes i was looking at sea snakes and blind snakes in the australian museum and um blind snakes and and some other elapids in the queensland museum um and so that that meant that i was sitting there with a microscope and tweezers and counting scales on on animals that um are extremely small um, and and difficult to count. So um, that was a bit of a pain in the ass. But you know, these these are the things that we do. So it was an experience, I suppose, as well. And um, you mentioned briefly the classification. Um, how did you go about sorting out? You know, as an example, carpet pythons, because I know we've spoken about that before. Yeah. So. Essentially, the taxonomy follows um, Hal Cogger's 2018 version of um, the reptiles and amphibians of Australia. Um, it's uh, it's probably the the best, more, most current work on the subject at the moment. But there's obviously things that, that get described and worked with every day. I mean, I got sent a paper today of some new steganotus in in Papua New Guinea. Um, that were literally that's literally came out about two hours before before we're talking now. Um, things are always changing, and so so it's difficult to to, to pick up Cogger's work that um, that came out. I think it was early this year it came out. Um, that was finished. I think from memory we we finished the corrections for that was about October last year. And, and in that time, there's already been some skinks being described between now and then. There's some two new species of lurista described um, about a week and a half ago. Um, Tropicagama was was validated. Um, and a new species, Lophagnathus horneri, was, was described. Um, and so 
even though there's animals that that um, that aren't in COGA 2018, um, if it meets the, the burden of proof and, and all the rest of it, then, then people are likely to pick it up. So we've also made some judgments and some decisions based on um, other scientific papers that are out there. And in particular, with regards to the carpet pythons, um, we've adopted the use of races for, for most of the carpets. Um, they don't, genetically, the, the carpet pythons, diamond pythons, so what people call coastal carpets, diamonds, um, top end or, or Darwin carpets, the animals in Cape York and jungle carpets, they're all genetically identical. Um, there's gene flow between all of those populations. Um, and it's more of a, a the, the coloration is basically a byproduct of where the animals live. If you get a, a, a carpet python that lives in, in dense rainforest in, in southern Queensland, they're fairly small, they've got really high contrasting pattern and they tend to look a lot like a jungle carpet from from Tully. Well, it just shows that it's not so much that it's a genetic variant, it's just a, a variant within the one species. And the ecology and the habitat type has more pushed that animal to become, to, to look like a, a jungle carpet, what we call a jungle carpet. Um, a little bit different with some of the other ones. Um, uh, Imbricata is a full species. It's just as genetically distinct um, as Bredeli is. And Bredeli is a full species as well. Um, and Metcalfi is sort of somewhere in the middle. Metcalfi is a, a subspecies, so we retain that as a subspecies of of, um, of normal carpet pythons because they do have. They're about five percent genetically different from from the others. So. So yeah, so that's basically that, where it's at. But, is that based sorry, on that? a specific cutoff, I guess, or just no, what you've so, decided? No, no, it's not. It's not what I've just decided. It's not completely arbitrary. Um, genetics, the percentile differences in in, in genetics in, in reptiles is is very fluid. Some animals speciate at different rates to others, so you get different rates of genetic divergence between. Um, different animals. So you need to look at the, the history and the, the evolution of a, of a particular um, group of animals and look at the fossil records, see how quickly they're changing and, and how much the, the genetic divergence is. Um, there's been some really good work out of the South Australian Museum and the, the uh, Flinders Uni, I think it is. Um, there was a paper by Rawlings and Donellan in 2008 that did a good phylogeny of, of Australian pythons and, and showed how close the, a lot of these animals are. And then there was another paper that, that looked at forensic analysis in the genetics of carpet pythons as well. And that looked at a lot of the, um, it looked at things at a lot more resolution and, and, and really cut, cut, cut a whole thing, a whole heap of things out in, in regards to, whether a diamond python is different from a McDowell or not, but you know it all depends. As we the minute as we sit here now, they're always improving genetic techniques and stuff like that. And and who knows, you know, they might change things and they might use a different genetic technique that's got better amplification of genes. Look at more spe specimens, and things might change again. You know, that's the beautiful beautiful thing about science is that. Uh, people are always changing things. They're not always keeping things the same. They're always trying to improve their knowledge. So, um, 
as methods improve for um, for looking at genetics, um, then there's going to be changes in the way we interpret that, those genetic structures as well. Yeah. And with that whole progression of science, I guess, as a whole, um, would you say that there's, do you find that there's still a want and need for books or is it more going towards the online side of things? I don't know. You tell me. Um, I, I like books. I like things that, that are, that you can pick up and hold in the end. Um, oh, look, it's, there's a pl time and a place for, for stuff on computers. Um, I, uh, with my my normal work, I, I look at standards a lot, and I look at contracts and things like that. And when I'm doing that, I use use electronic searching methods to to find certain things in in five six hundred page documents. Um, so, you know, there there is a a, a use for stuff on um, uh, there is there is a use for digital media. Whether digital media is the best thing for when you're out in the bush, I, I don't know. Um, the whole idea of these books, um, uh, that's the frog book there, it's its fairly small. Um, the snake book's going to be the same size. Um, and so because it's going to be the same size, you'll be able to throw it in your backpack. Um, the book's not aimed at herpetologists. The book's aimed at, at Farmer Joe. Um, who saw a snake in the back paddock? It's aimed at the the scout group. It's aimed at the people that have got a a passing interest. There's there's stuff in it for for her post. Don't get me wrong. There's a there's a whole of a lot of information and there's lots of photos and there's lots of interesting things. But it's not really aimed at them. It's aimed at the at the wider audience. You know, um, I'd like to I'd like to write books for her post. I'd like to write books for me, but that doesn't necessarily sell them. So. That's not, not, not really the plan. And um, I have, I've got a copy of the Cogger book that you mentioned before. Did you yep. include white lip pythons in yours or was that no. just a different choice? No, they're not, they're not in Australia. Hal and I disagree okay. about that. Um, there, there is, Hal and I spoke about it at length. There, there's a couple of old site records from Cyber, by I think, for memory, um, or it might be Moa oh, Island, one of the, one of the two. Um, so there's Cyboy or Moa, and they were site records only. Um, so there's no specimens. There's no specimens in any of the Australian museums. There's no specimens in any of the Dutch museums or German museums or, or anything like that where there's reason or German museums where there's reasonable sort of holdings of Australian or or Papuan um, herbivora. And so, therefore, we've disagreed that, that, that they're there. Um, uh, Steve and Jerry don't have them in their book either. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a line ball on that one. Um, I... Yeah, they would have been seen by now. Uh, or if they're, if they're still there, they'd, they'd, be, they'd still be around. But having said that... Um, Varanus Dorianus only just turned up in in Queensland um, officially a few years ago. It was known in the early 2000s, I think, that the first specimens were seen. And they were always thought just to be a, a type of mangrove monitor. So 
if a big goanna like a, a Verona Storianus can be um, be hidden away from science, surely a, a black snake that looks a bit like a water python can give, can be mistaken as well. Um, the if they are in Australia, they're not going to be Albertisi. Um, Albertisi is on the northern side of the Owen Stanley Range in New Guinea, so that's in the northern half of New Guinea. The ones in the southern half of New Guinea are uh, Liopython miridinalis or, or Liopython hoseri, depending on which nomenclature you use. Um, there's a case pending in front of the, the ICZN at the moment, which is the International Convention for Zoological Nomenclature, that will hopefully stabilise quite a few uh, scientific names of, of, of some animals due to... Yeah. Um, Due to some interesting practices in other papers, I suppose, is the most way of putting it. Yeah. And um, now let's move on to the keeping side uh, of your yep. reptile obsession, I guess. Um, roughly how many species do you think you work with? Oh, I don't know. A few. Um, look, between the... I mean, I, I work with them, obviously, with my wife. It's not It's not just myself. Um, we're pushing uh, probably 40 odd species at the moment um yeah. it's it's you know as i i can i can literally go around and count them but i'm not going to bother <laughs> that's just ridiculous um we we keep lots of venomous snakes um lots of elapids quite a few pythons um we've got freshwater crocodiles we've got a whole heap of monitors um quite a few skinks as well and some turtles and frogs and Legless lizards and geckos and and uh, yeah, that's it. We don't keep any dragons. That's so we we keep basically everything bar dragons. Um, okay. I I don't particularly like dragons. Dragons annoy me, and um, I don't have the patience for them, and neither does Ty. So we don't have them. Simple as that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and what is your favourite to work with out of all of the species and animals that you've got? Um, it's always a toss-up. This for me, it's it's either red belly black snakes or, or coastal taipans. Um, I do like butler snakes as well. I've recently got butler snakes too, but I can't play with them much because they're sitting in quarantine. Um, oh, look, I, I think red bellies are probably my favourite. Um, but from a working with type thing. I, I really like working with taipans because taipans work with you as, as well. They they suss you out as much as you suss them out. Um, yeah. And pythons, I, I really like olive pythons as well. Just for any particular reason or just because? I've, I've got an olive python here that that's over 37 years of age. Um, so he was a, a wild-caught animal from Graham Gow. Um, Graham Gow is a, a fairly famous herpo that, that died about a decade ago now. Um, but I got that from Graham. And I got that from Graham in about 1993, I think, from memory. Um, and, yeah, I've, that animal's still doing demonstrations now. Um, the... That, so that book there, a few people might have that book. 
uh, he's in that book. He's the olive python in that book is is Cuddles. And Cuddles has been around the necks of kids um, all over Victoria and, and Queensland um, doing demonstrations and stuff like that. He's been on video. He's gone up girls' skirts and all sorts of bloody things on te- on camera and on television and, and all sorts of stuff. So he's a he's a bit of a troublemaker, but he's he's been around for a long time. And you know he lost his tongue to cancer uh, about ten years ago, and and he's still going fine. Um, I think one thing with reptiles, a lot of people keen to keep them overweight. Um, I find that if you keep the animals a little bit leaner. The, the animals seem to live for a hell of a lot longer. Um, yeah. You know, we've got plenty of animals that are in their uh, mid to late 20s. Um, you know, this this rubbish that reptiles live for, uh, that the pythons live for 10 years or 12 years, is, is just bullshit. Um, it's animals that have been bred to hell and, and you know, they, they die because they're overweight. They've been bred too much. There's too much of a toll on their... On their uh, physiology, and that's caused them to die. Um, so, if animals are kept in bigger enclosures, um, if animals are kept in bigger enclosures with more uh, more ability to be able to get muscle tone, uh, fed a a diet that is not only good but it is also different. It varies a little bit. Um, all of those things are very important. Um, we ended up building a reptile room, a building um, room slash building, um, uh, five years ago, I think it was. Um, and one of the things with that was is that we wanted to in, increase the size of the enclosures a fair bit, um, but we also wanted to fix a few few things that we were never going to be able to do where we were keeping animals. And so one of the things that I was sort of pushing for or what I wanted to to implement is is photo periods that were a little bit more realistic as opposed to just through a window. Um, so we ended up putting double glazed skylights in the roof of the building and what that does is it not only allows the animals uh, proper photo periods but it also allows them to have lunar cycles as well. And so if we go in there when it's a full moon, all the snakes are uh, hunkered back sitting away in the underneath their hides or, or anything like that and they're, they're not active whereas like you come in and when there's no moon so a new moon so it's a black night um the animals are cruising about which is fairly similar to what they do in the wild um we've tried to go away from from racks as much as possible um, we still have some racks in there because it's, it is an efficient way of keeping things. It's good. It's a really good way of keeping certain species. Um, but it, we find it's hard to observe the animals without interrupting them in a rack. And so if we can have enclosures that um, that we can see into, we tend to find that better. So. Yeah. And um, what are some of the main things? Do you try and breed or does that just kind of happen or...? Is that another um, part of it? No, look, we breed. We try to breed certain things. We've got species management plans for things. Um, we don't want to breed certain species, and, and that's because we either we don't have need to breed them, um, or they're not part of the, the animals on our, our manage on our management plan. So, um, 
there are certain species that we would like to breed that we haven't been successful in breeding as yet. Um, and so we'll continue to try, but, but there's plenty of species that we just don't put together um, because the last thing we want to do is, is, is have more animals into a market that, um, that we don't particularly want to saturate. Um, the other side of it too is that I don't particularly like dealing with, with fucking tire kickers. Um, excuse the French, they give me the shits. Um, I don't mind uh, dealing with somebody, but uh, if, you, if you're going to buy the animal, buy the animal. Don't, don't fuck me about. Um, I don't have time or the inkling to, to deal with, with dickheads and neither does my wife, frankly. Um, and nor should you. You know, At the end of the day, if you want to buy an animal, don't try and label it. The price is the price. Um, I don't mind if you want to try and get a better deal. That's fine, but don't, don't be fucking ridiculous. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you turn around and say, oh, I'm going to buy 10 of this or I'm going to buy 10 of that or whatever, you're probably going to get a bit of a discount anyway. Um, so, you know, I think people need to be a little bit more prepared to, to follow up with what they, they do and do what they're actually going to say they're going to do um, and don't dick people around. So, you know, so now we'll put things together if we, if we want to breed them and if there happens to be some excess stock, we'll list some excess stock. Um, if there's not excess stock, then that doesn't matter. We're not, we're not really worried about it. We don't make money out of, out of breeding and selling reptiles. That's not part of our, our bit. Um, plenty of people do it really well um, and more power, power to them. Um, I think that licensing laws, particularly here in New South Wales, in, in Queensland and, and also New South Wales and Victoria and South Australia are, are very outdated. Um, Overseas, there doesn't seem to be any issues with people keeping reptiles without licences. Um, and they don't have problem, massive problems with, with animals being collected for the pet trade. Um, I don't see that as being a major problem here either. Um, people aren't going to go out to Western Queensland to catch Wyma pythons and, and black-headed pythons for, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in fuel when you can go and buy a Woma python for $50 off a, a classified page. You can buy a black-headed python for, for $100 on a, on a classified page. Um, we bred children's pythons, I think it was last year, and we ended up selling them for 20 bucks each. You know, it's there's, there's no money in, in those animals. There's money in mutations, but you're not going to go out to the bush and find a mutation. So, you know, there's, there's people out there like um, David Evans and Joe Ball and uh, Deb and Wayne Larks and um, uh, Darren Whitaker down in, in, down in Sydney and, and all these guys that have spent, you know, Russell Grant, Neil Sonneman, um, Peter Birch, Peter Krauss, and, and the list goes on. All these people that have done some fantastic things in the hobby with, with breeding reptiles and um, breeding mutations and doing this and doing that and doing the other. But they don't need to get animals out of the bush for that. And they're not getting animals out of the bush for that. They're, they're breeding animals that they're bred in captivity for years and years and years. And just having government come along and putting on additional legislation for no reason, for no conservation benefit. There's no conservation benefit to having wildlife licensing. That's that's a, a load of shit. Um, 
those Rangers could spend more time if if they wanted to, um, if they were serious about really making a difference to to wildlife, they should take the money that they use from wildlife enforcement, put that into costs of bullets and professional shooters, and get professional shooters to go out and shoot cats. Mm. All right, because every cat that they kill saves about three hundred odd specimens of of wildlife of of reptiles. So. You know, if they put that money into into bullets and professional shooters, they could just kill a hell of a lot of cats and foxes mm. and do a lot more for conservation. Or alternatively, they could spend that money on buying reserves and and, and things like that. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be licensing at all, um, but licensing the way it is at the moment needs to needs to change. And there's reforms going on in Queensland. There's <coughs> excuse me. There's reforms in New South Wales. There's reforms in South Australia. Victoria is not far away from this next round of reforms. Um, WA's just had some reforms as well. NT will have them too. Um, hopefully a system will become a little bit more more sensible. Prefer, personally, I'd like to see a national system. Get rid of state-based legislation or go national. And that way it doesn't matter if you're in Queensland or Tasmania or anything like that. It'd be good. Um, Tasmania is a really great case for us in Australia as well. The Tasmania, you, in Tasmania, you get your, your herpetology licence yeah. and that allows you to go out and catch snakes from the wild and lizards from the wild and you can keep them as pets. You can breed them. You can trade them amongst each other. You can't trade them out of the state uh, unless it's to a demonstrator. Basically, you can't trade them out of the state. But copperheads and tiger snakes and white-lipped snakes and blotched blue tongues aren't, aren't going into extinction in Tasmania. Um... People are, they're not raping and pillaging down there or anything like that. I don't see people doing the same thing up here either. Um, for reasons as I was saying before. So, um, you know, hopefully we can, the things like the, the legislation can change and be a little bit more user friendly um, and be a little bit more realistic, I suppose. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I think from a lot of people that I've spoken to, a lot have said that a national system would just make it so much easier. It's just whether it happens or not, I guess. Well, it'd be cheaper, wouldn't it? You know, at the end of the day, you've got, you know, there's eight eight states and territories in this country. And so you would have eight heads of licensing departments. You've got eight heads of enforcement. You've got all of these people that are around that are doing all those things. Um, you'd only need one, one head as opposed to eight. So straight away, you can have savings. Um, you cut down on red tape. You wouldn't have to worry about import and export permits and all that rubbish. Um, it'd be a simple system that would be out Australia-wide and it wouldn't matter. And then the other thing is too, is that you have people that move from Queensland to New South Wales or Victoria to Queensland and they're, they're not people that keep lots of reptiles, they're people that have got their, their, their one carpet python or, or whatever. They move in house. They're thinking about a whole heap of other things. They move house and they've brought their carpet python with them. And then suddenly they've gone, oh, I never didn't know, to, didn't know I needed to get an import permit or I didn't need to do this or I didn't need to do that. And they don't. Or they do and then they, they have headaches with the department and all the rest of it. So um, a national system would be a hell of a lot better, I think. Mm. Um and it would be better for, for commer commercial 
entity that, you know, the Constitution states that there should be free trade between states. Technically speaking, there's not free trade between states because in New South Wales, you need to get an import permit or an export permit and that costs money. Yeah. That's not free trade. Mm. And so it's, it, it actually goes against the Constitution to have costs in relating to import and export permits. The, the WA system where there's a fee to send an animal out of the state is illegal because it's against the Constitution. It's meant to be free trade between the states. It's not meant to be a tax to go across one border to another, and that's exactly what those levies are. Um, I'm not a bloody lawyer, and at the end of the day, there's no body that, uh, no industry body in Australia that um, has really sort of taken off. Uh, and that's largely because of egos, and egos are a, are a big bloody problem for us. Um, you know, we've, we've all, everyone's got egos, I've got egos, I, I've got an ego like everybody else. Um, but sometimes people need to look past those egos and 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 do things for, for, the, for the good of the whole community. And I think licensing isn't necessarily the, the best way to, to go about it for conservation of reptiles and amphibians. Um, making little Johnny a... a um, a criminal because he wants to keep catch a blue tongue that he saw in his backyard when he was a, a as a kid. That doesn't that doesn't bode well for me. I, I don't see the, the the problem with that. I don't see the problem with um, people collecting some tadpoles and then raising those tadpoles um, in a school environment to teach primary school students about the metamorphosis change between egg to tadpole to to frog. Well, you can't do that anymore, you know. And I mean, I got to grow up and see that when I was a when I was a real little kid. I got to see that. Um, you don't tend to see that in schools anymore. Mm. So that's quite disappointing. Um, you know, the the stuff that I did as a young kid was illegal. I was catching lizards and I was catching frogs and I was keeping them as pets. Mm. Yeah, but. You know, technically, under the, the the Wildlife Act, that was illegal at the time. Um, I, I don't. I genuinely think that it shouldn't be. I think there should be a, You should be able to catch certain species for either pets or so kids can learn about about their environment and get off bloody screens. Mm. Yeah. So. so have it regulated to an extent, but not overly, I guess. Yeah, look, I think it needs to be regulated. I don't think people should be able to keep a, a taipan without a without a license or a, um, you know, your, your neighbour two doors down shouldn't be able to keep a saltwater crocodile because he thinks it'd be cool. Um, I think there needs to be uh, some some regulations behind it. I think there needs to be some um, some structure behind it. But I don't see a problem with that. If you can prove that your your animals have come from a captive bred source. I haven't been poached out of the wall, that the animals are being kept in a, in a humane, safe manner that, that meets the requirements for those animals. Um, I don't have a problem with an industry body that, that is out there to keep an eye on things, but I don't necessarily think it should be a Gestapo-type licensing system where, where people are almost assumed to be criminals before they... Um, before they are, uh, before they're proven not to be. Now, the, the other side of it too is that, you know, in regards to, say, snakes, it's illegal for 
for just about everyone in this country to go up and and pick up a tiger snake or pick up a brown snake or pick up a red belly black snake. But you don't see anyone getting charged if somebody goes up to that same red belly, that same brown or that same tiger and whacks it overhead with a shovel. Yeah. Nobody in this country is getting prosecuted for killing venomous snakes. Yeah. All right, but plenty of people get in trouble for harassing them. Um, you know, I think I think that needs to needs to be looked at a little bit more seriously than what it is these days. Yeah. Um, now going back to the whole keeping side of things, um, yep. out of either what you've got at the moment or something that you don't have yet, what is your dream species to own? Oh, I'm going to ask this a few times. Um, for me, the one species that I'd like to keep that I, I haven't kept is Shedecus papuanus, the, the Papuan black snake. Um, they do occur in Australia and on a, a couple of islands. Um, the chances of me getting them are pretty slim. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll put permits in or something like that, hopefully, at some point in time when I've got a bit more time and money and, and hopefully be able to collect some and, and, and look to keep them. Um, but that's a, a very long process, putting putting in scientific research permits to, to keep things like that. Um, one thing I wanted for years, I just recently got were, were butler snakes. Um, and so they're sitting in quarantine at the moment and, you know, I can't wait to, to get them out and be able to play with them a bit more than the very last animals at the end of the day to, to, to deal with. Um, the other thing I really like are on pellies as well. Um, OPs are... A, a pretty impressive snake and I've seen one in the flesh. Um, I've never, never had the opportunity to, I've never been lucky enough to catch one and see one in the in the world. Um, I've only ever seen a captive one. So, um, you know, hopefully I'll be able to change that either finding one, um, which would be amazing. I'd love to go. That's, that's the one animal I really want to see in the, in the world. Um, and yeah, I'm, at the moment, I'm still trying to convince Ty that it's a good idea that we should drop a drop some money on on some OPs um, from from Gavin. So um, I'll keep I'll keep sort of working on her about that. Hopefully, she'll she'll decide that it's a good idea at some point in time. So yeah, yeah. I think everybody yeah. everybody that can't have Owen Pallies wants them. I think is how that works. <laughs> Or anybody that doesn't have them yet. Yeah, they're they're a pretty incredible animal. Um, you know, I think a think a massive scrub python that changes colour at night that's friendly. You know, that's yeah. a it's a pretty cool animal to keep. Um, so you know, I've got a we've got a couple of cages that are, that are set up in such a way that we'd be able to keep ops. Um, so we're, we're we're sort of set and ready for them, so to speak. But there's there's olive pythons in those enclosures at the moment, but um, that's all right. We can we can move things around and and make things happen. Who knows? Who knows what'll happen? So you know they might come down at a, at a better price as well, and they come down at a little bit more reasonable price. It might be a bit easier to um, to to get that one get that mm. one passed. Um, you know they're a hell of a lot of money, and yeah. you know they're they're a fantastic creature. Um, but also too, we've got a mortgage and overheads and bills like everybody else. So, you know, unfortunately, I can't drop a whole heap of money on a, on an old pelly this week. But you know, 
people people like Ferraris too, and they don't drive them. So you know, what, what do I say? Yeah, it's like um, I was listening to there was an interview with Gavin Bedford. Um, I think it was yeah. the Aussie Wildlife Show, and yeah. he was saying how he's got one that's five meters long, and you just yeah. that just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, they're um. It'd be a pretty incredible animal to... The, the, the animal that I saw was about... Uh, I think the person said it was about 14 and a half foot. So, uh, what's that? That's pushing pushing four metres. So, that's a, that's a big snake, um, 4.2 metres. Um, and it was a big, it was a big sort of strong, healthy animal. Um, it was one of the animals that Peter Krause had bred back in the 90s, this, this particular animal. Um, and, yeah, you know, it was a beautiful snake. Um, there's something about them. It, but pictures don't do them justice. Until you see one in the flesh, it's it's a it's a whole nother ballpark. So, um, yeah, look, uh, you know, Gavin's, Gavin's done really well with them and it's a, an absolute credit to him. Very hard dealing with what he's had to deal with to, to, to get those animals um, and to put them at the prices that he has is, is very, very reasonable. It's just outside mm. of my, my particular financial considerations at this point in time. Um, but, yeah, I, I think when I first heard the price on it, I thought, Jesus, that's, that's, that's quite low uh, compared to what I thought they were going to go for. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think they're, they're, a, they're an amazing animal and, and the, Gavin's done a really great effort in, in being able to bring those animals into the hobby. You know, who knows? I don't think they'll quite be as common as um, uh, as um, rough-scale pythons anytime soon in the mm-hmm. hobby, but, you know, John and Co did a, a hell of a lot of really good work to get rough-scales established in the hobby as well. Um, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, who knows, 20 years' time, you know, we could be talking about everybody having old pellets. Yeah. Um, that'd be a pretty cool thing. That's for yeah, sure. <laughs> definitely. You know, I mean, I, I suppose the other side of it is that I remember there's a, a magazine that, that's put out by the, the Herpetological Society of New South Wales um, called Herpetofauna. And I remember the, the cover had a photo of the third specimen of the, the Ruskar python ever to be known. Um, now, that was back in about 1993. So, what are we, 2013, 2003, 2013, 2014. So, what's that, 30 years later, and they're one of the most common snakes in captivity mm. in Australia. So, who knows, what's gonna happen in, who knows what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years? Yeah. And um, I guess going back to the whole keeping side of things, you also keep stuff outdoors. Um, yes. How do you go about that? Building expensive bloody enclosures. Um, <laughs> so we've built built a number of pits. I'm a uh, tradesman uh, as well, but, and I'm a plumber gas fitter by trade, so I'm, I'm reasonably handy with my hands. And, you know, I've got some, got tools and all the rest of it, so I know how to build stuff. Um I ended up building quite a few enclosures out of various system, and that way we can keep animals in in bigger enclosures, give them 
proper UV, proper photo periods, all that sort of stuff. So, and there's less maintenance once they're set up properly in pits that are designed well. Um, the, the trick is designing the enclosure large enough, making sure that you don't overcrowd it and that you have it set up where if it's really hot, the animals can get away. If it's really cold, the animals can get away. So you minimise those extremes. Um, and they, they do need to keep fairly dry most of the time as well. So you want to make sure that you set your enclosures up so that the enclosures are, are dry, but they still allow a little bit of rain to get to parts of the enclosure and that they are, uh, are set up in such a way that um, they do get access to the elements and stuff like that. But a, diet, a really good diet is very important as well, a very diet. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, big enclosures and for, for big animals, you know, our, our, the floor area in our, uh, for our lace monitors is... Um, is it uh, about 36 square metres, I think they've got. Yep. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty big, big area that they, they, that they live in. Um, but, the, you know, they, they use every centimetre of that enclosure. The Parentes use every centimetre of their enclosure. The Mertens use every centimetre of their enclosure. The, the carpets and diamonds use every centimetre of their enclosure. So it's a matter of, of designing an enclosure that, that meets the needs of the animals. Um, the other thing that we've had to design as well and, and implement was um, toad proofing the enclosures as well. Um, you know, it's a pretty expensive lesson to lose a, a parenti to a fucking cane toad. Um, mm. You know, it's not so much the money side of it that really pissed me off. It was the fact that an animal's died a pretty horrible death because of the way that I'd set that animal up. You know, I hadn't taken it into account that cane toads could have potentially gotten into that enclosure. Um, and because I didn't pick up on it, um, a little cane toad got in, little cane toad uh, was, was eaten by the perenni, the perenni died. I ended up cutting the perenni open and, and proved that it was a bloody toad. Um, you know, it's not a not a cheap lizard to lose, but it's also a pretty horrible way to die. So, um, you know, it's it's important to take those things into consideration. That not only do you build an enclosure that's that's suitable for the needs of the animal to keep, but also to keep keep things out of the enclosure as well as whether that be predators or or feral species. Yeah, and um, how did you go about toad proofing the enclosures? Uh, so generally speaking, what we've set up is we've got high walls on the outside that are smooth. And so they're, they're larger than what a toad can, can climb. And so that way we've, we've prevented them from getting in. Um, or if we've done animals, done pits that are low to the ground, again, we'll put a barrier there that the toads can't, can't get over. Yeah. And, um, let's. I guess go on to other things now. Um, so you mentioned before the use of skylights in your reptile room. Yes. Um, yeah. And the lunar cycles and that sort of thing. What is? Do you think there's yep. any merit to keeping more animals like that as well and seeing how behaviour changes? Um, it's working for me. Uh, it's working for Ty. Um, whether... There's, there's plenty of people that don't have 
their animals exposed to solar solar radiation cycles or, or lunar cycles, and and they're able to keep the animals just fine. Um, I think what people need to remember is that when you keep an animal, you keep it in a particular way. That doesn't make the way that you keep them the only way that's successful. It doesn't make the way that you keep them being the only, the best way. It means that's just the way that you happen to keep them. Um, I think that a lot of species need certain things, uh, certain boxes, I suppose, uh, to be ticked for those animals to thrive. Yeah. Some of the more difficult species that we find to keep, maybe the reason that we're struggling to keep those species is that they don't necessarily fit into the little boxes that we, we tend to keep animals in now, where we give them a certain temperature for a certain amount of time during the day, a certain type of light, a certain type of substrate, and more or less we keep a lot of animals in a very similar manner and only change things just slightly. Um, some of those more what we deem as being specialised species probably aren't specialised at all. You just can't keep them the same way that we're keeping everything else. And so as a result, if you try to keep those animals in that way, you do, you do poorly. Okay? Yep. And um, let's go on to talking about, the, I guess, the top ten. So... In the world, in Australia, top 10 most venomous. And what, yeah, okay. so, I guess, how does that work? Okay, so the, the top 10 most venomous snakes is a, it's a bit like arguing about whether it's worse to be hit by a truck or worse to be hit by a car. At the end of the day, dead's dead. So, so that's the first thing that needs to be sort of remembered. Um, the second part is that there is a number of tests that scientists use to to look at venom toxicity. Okay, now there was a study done in the in the late seventies by Broad and Sutherland, and as part of that, they published a a uh, the most toxic snakes of Australia, and they had three exotic species as controls that were added to that list. Now whether some journalists or, or something like that got a hold of this, but haven't really understood the, 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 what that scientific paper was saying. And they've just said, oh, Australia's got the most toxic snakes in the world. Well, we had a number of species that were a hell of a lot more toxic than, than, um, than cobras and uh, Indian cobras and um, King cobras and, and rattlesnakes that were used as, as the, the outgroups within that, or the controls within that study, um, including the snake that's most toxic to mice, the inland type ant. Um, but they, they've, they've sort of bastardised that study and, and they've taken that as being that's the, the list of the world's most toxic snakes in the world. There's a, a, a website that has a, a list of, of the world's most toxic snakes and that inputs studies from, from all over the world and they've basically got a, a macro in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet that filters across and you can change it to, to subcutaneous or intraperitoneal or intramuscular or, or whichever injection, intravenous, whichever injection method you want to use. And then you can look at that and, and put that in and it'll tell you what is the most toxic snake to mice. Um, 
but it's important that people remember that it's only to do with mice. Um, Sydney funnelweb spiders are incredibly toxic to, to people. They'll kill, they'll kill people um, fairly rapidly if the, the bite goes untreated. And yet they don't tend to kill rats or mice because their venom doesn't have that little quirk that kills people that you know, to kill rodents um, or large rodents and stuff like that. Um, yeah. They're testing... They test snake venom on mice. Inland taipans are designed to eat rodents. So it makes yeah. sense that they are designed in such a way to that they've evolved to have venom that is extremely toxic towards rodents. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you know, you're not really looking at it properly. Um, brown tree snakes are, are apparently very toxic to birds, um, but they're not very toxic to mice. So if we changed it and we said, right, we're only going to use, we're going to use birds now as our, our study item uh, for, for measuring relative toxicity, then inland type ants may not be the most toxic snake in the world. It might be, mm. might be something else. Um, so people need to sort of go away from being what's the deadliest and start thinking about, well, you know, the deadliest snake in the world is the, one, is the only one that you need to be concerned about is the one that just bit you. Mm. So, only worry about that one. Don't worry about uh, theoretical arguments about whether or not this is more toxic than that. And getting into those pissing matches doesn't do anyone any favours. Yeah. Because it's all based on, I guess, what the snake eats compared to what the venom components are versus... Yeah, and at the end of the day, I'm not a mouse. And neither are you. Yeah. You know, I don't have tail. I don't have big ears. I don't eat a whole heap of seed and, and, and grain and stuff like that. Um... I'm not a mouse. So, yeah. I, you know, no one's ever died from an inland, inland taipan. But mm. plenty of people have come very, very close, um, but mm. no one's died from an inland as yet. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they're not very toxic snakes. I'm saying that mm. that to, to, to say they are the most toxic snakes in the world, yeah, it's, it's factually correct, but, you know, that it doesn't really make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that I thought that we would, would be good to talk about was um, reptiles and Facebook, I guess, and I guess identifications <laughs> and all of that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Um, I've seen that you're on a lot of the identification pages and you're one of the main authorities in that field. Um, how do you go about that and how, I guess, how did you end up, Drawing the short straw on that one as well. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> um, that that that's the long and the short of it. Um, I am not. Um, I, I haven't graduated university. I'm not a herpetologist or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm an enthusiast, like 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 many people are. But there's no harm in that. There's no problem with that. Um, it, it is important that when you you, when you're going to identify a reptile, that you that you look closely at the features of that animal, and that you you basically put it through a well, you use your experience to go right. Okay, well it's either this or it's that or or, or whatever. Um, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Um, there's a hell of a lot of people out there that think it's easy, um, that make assumptions on things that aren't necessarily correct. Um, I've, I've made mistakes too, like everybody, everybody makes mistakes. Um, 
but I do try to make sure that that I'm I'm careful. And where I say I'm careful is I might identify something to a genus as opposed to a species because I can't be sure that it is is species X or species Y. I've probably got an inkling. I'm probably reasonably sure as to what it is, but I won't say it. I'll say, oh, yeah, it's a brown snake or it's a, or it's this. Um, yeah. Particularly in Western Australia, animals from from southwestern uh, WA in unusual locations or locations where you could either have Chidonea mengeni, the, the western brown snake, or Jugot, Chidonea affinis, and you're seeing a little bit of the body or, or whatever, it's enough to know that it's brown snake, but it's not enough to know that, that it's definitely an affinis or definitely a mengeni. Um, some people are very, very quick to, to jump on things with that like that, and... You know, that's where I'll I'll just let them let them sort of <laughs> they could have the glory, so to speak. I, the last thing I want is 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 glory in that regard. I don't think it's a um, a race or anything like that. Um, I get tagged in things a lot to to give people identifications on 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 certain things, and if I can give a, an identification that's um, that I feel confident in, in telling people, then I'm, I'm happy to do that. But um, at the same time, I'm, uh, there's other people that know know more about certain things than I do as well, and, and I'll defer that to them at, at certain times as well. There's no harm in saying that you're not sure or that you don't know. Um, yep. I must admit, though, at times you just sit there and go, yeah, I don't know how people have got to that conclusion. Um, and... You know, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of things out there that you know, those identification pages have, have been really good and show me lots of things too. You know, you you see um, some really interesting behavioural insights, some very interesting aspects of ecology of certain species. Um, yeah. You see some unusual colour mutations. There have been lots and lots of albinos that have turned up. Um no, I'm still yet to see a bloody albino in the wild, but it seems like lots of other people get to see them. Um, mm. And so, you know, albino crown snakes and albino this and albino that, and then uh, exotic species. There's been corn snakes and mm. boa constrictors and, um, yeah, there's been lots and lots of things that have turned up that, that shouldn't be here. Um, mm. So it, it is interesting. Some of those things you see on those ID pages are, is is very interesting. Mm. And um, with the exotics, what are your thoughts on? I guess it's obvious that people have them, but how if you, for some unknown reason, became the governing body on that tomorrow, what would you do with the ones that are already here? Um. There's no right answer here. Um, case by case basis. Yeah. Um, they're, they're here in, in big numbers, yeah. in really big numbers, numbers that people cannot ascertain just how big mm. the big they are. Um, corn snakes are breeding in, in the wild in New South Wales. Um, I'm quite confident of that. Yeah. Um, there's been things like boa constrictors found in Queensland. Um, 
there's been boas found in Melbourne. There's been corn snakes found in Melbourne. Corn snakes up here. Iguanas found in Townsville. Um, chameleons in in New South Wales. Um, Red ear sliders everywhere. There's there's plenty of exotic reptiles that uh, have turned up in the wild. In um, in and they tend to be more around uh, city centres. Mm. Yep. That tends to suggest that there are animals that are being kept illegally um, in private in private hands. Um, I know in Victoria, twenty years ago, there was big numbers of exotic reptiles being kept because it wasn't illegal. Mm. It wasn't illegal to have boa constrictors and corn snakes and fucking rattlesnakes and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was held in captivity in private hands. And there was a lot of people that had, had exotics and it was perfectly legal for them to have it. There was an amnesty and those animals were then put onto license. Um, the problem was with that amnesty is that people thought that the amnesty was, there was going to be a second amnesty, I suppose. And, and there was all these animals that weren't being, that hadn't been sort of, um, that hadn't been put onto the onto the, the licence because they weren't sure what people were going to do. They thought the department were just going to take them all and then euthanise them. Well, they were surprised when they said, no, you can keep them, you're just not allowed to breed them. So, um, you know, people are still, I'm sure people are still keeping boas and they're still keeping corn snakes and they're still breeding them. Um, I disagree with it. I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of, of people keeping exotic reptiles in this country. I don't think there's a need for it. Um, that said, um, I think that there probably should be a way that that people can do it if they want to do it, yeah. and they should be able to do it legally. So you're better off setting up a form of licensing system that allows people to do it, and then they can't say, well, you can't do it. Yeah. No, you can do it. You just need to follow these these things. So if you're just desperate to keep right a ball python or you're desperate to keep a corn snake, you're desperate to keep a boa, these are the hoops that you need to jump through to do it. Um, as for the animals that are already here, um, again, this is a, another one of those things that, and why I think a national licensing system is important is because a national licensing system can come up with a, a way of tackling this problem yep. and deal with it once and for all. And then go, right, as of day dot, there is going to be an amnesty. This is what we are going to do with the animals if you declare them, they're either going to be euthanised, they're not going to be euthanised, they're going to be this, that and the other. But moving forward, if you're caught with an exotic X, this is what the punishment, this is the minimum punishment, this is the maximum punishment for each one of these that you have. Yeah. Um, now, that might be that you know, they look at bloody jail sentence or something like that. If you've got an exotic venomous snake, you're endangering the public. Mm. You know, we don't have anti-venom for, for yeah. cobras um, uh, that's, that's held outside of some collections that are in, um, that have exotic venomous snakes, that legally have exotic venomous snakes. Um, so let's let's say for argument's sake that somebody's got a, a pet king cobra and they get bitten by that pet king cobra and they go to the hospital and the, the hospital goes, anyone got king cobra anti-venom? And... ARP go, yeah, we keep King Cobras, yeah, we've got anti-venom, and they they do the the nice thing 
and they provide that antivenom to the hospital and that person survives. And then one of their keepers tomorrow gets bitten by one of their own king cobras that they've got legally, and now that person dies. Yeah, then you've got issues. You know, it's a, it's a pretty shitty thing to have happen. So, yeah. um, you know, I disagree with that. And then the other side of it is that there is a lot of stuff that's here, that is here. Um, yeah. If we were able to keep it in a legal manner, I think there would be less chance of things coming in via illegal means and yeah. that the animals would be, there'd be less chance of things like quarantine issues and stuff like that. Um, I think the other, the other one, and the, the other side of it is, is not just the animals coming in, it's the animals going out. Mm. You know, if you want to get rid of smuggling, legalise exportation for, yeah. of Australia's wildlife, put taxes on it, put things yeah. on it, put systems on it, make yeah. it in such a way that it's got to, to hit the checks and balances. But there's, there's no reason why somebody who's keeping and breeding carpet pythons shouldn't be able to move those carpet pythons to a person overseas. Mm. I don't see what the harm is. Yeah. It's got to be legislated. It's got to be thought about. It's got to be done properly. But there, but there should be a way to do it. And if you, yeah. uh, if you do set up in such a way that you can get those animals out legally and do it properly, then people overseas in turn are going to want to buy animals from a legal source. They're not going to want to buy animals that are illegal because they're going to get themselves into shit. So that's probably the better way to go about it. Yeah. Um, okay. For me personally, I think I would prefer to just be able to own the, all of the Australian stuff than the exotics because, you know, now we can't have, there's a lot of things that we can't have in Victoria at the moment. But if, you know, if there was just say a list of these are the species nationwide that you can keep these things you can't just because there's not a lot of them or for some reason you just can't have them then that's fine but the i guess it comes down to that national system again because different states have different you know species keeping lists and so, so like what that. do you what do you want to keep that's what do you want to keep that you can't keep in victoria um well there's a long list but i'll give you the top two Parentes and Owen Pallies are the main ones. Parentes and Owen Pallies. Right. So how big an enclosure are you going to put either of those into? Massive. <laughs> so do you have... So, oh, that's a different thing. Yeah. So have you got the means to keep them? Oh, I have no, not at all. But as an example, you know, if you were in so the... So then does it really matter if they're on the... It. Does it really... But does it really matter if they're on the licensing if you don't have the means to be able to keep them? That's a good point, I guess. That's a good point. Yeah, fair enough. But it's another example would be like the Baranus Barici. I've heard Barici, from yeah. sources that they were they were attempted to be added last time they changed the lists, but they got knocked back. Yeah. But like from what I've seen, they're basically the same as um, Aki's care-wise yep. or a little bit different. Yep, they are. But we've no, got no, Aki's. identical to keeping an Aki. Exactly the same. Yeah. It's, it's yep. you know, the so, small things like that that doesn't make sense. Okay, so in a case of, say, Varanus Berigi, um, you can keep Acanthurus down there. Very, very similar. Um, people were probably keeping Berigi 
down there as Akinthurus but not even bloody realising it. Um, yeah. The reality of it is is that there's not a hell of a lot of Beridji in captivity these days. There's a few, but there's not a heap. And where it would have fallen down is that the Victorian system, when you are going to add something to a, a list, and every five years this comes up, I think it is, or every 10 years you can look to add species to the schedules, you yeah. need to to give them a reason. You need to give them some reasonable, uh, some decent reasons as to why you want to add species X. Um, people tried to add Beridji. I think they tried to add Primordius as well. Um, they didn't get either of those through from what I understand because of the numbers that were being held in captivity in, in New South Wales, South Australia and the Northern Territory in Queensland because they they just wasn't enough. Um, so how do you keep Beridji in captivity if you can't get the Beridji in the first place? Yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. if, if there's stuff there, uh, my suggestion is straight out to you now, if there's stuff that you want to keep, right, that is not on that list, start getting, have a chat to the people, probably the VHS is probably a good place, place to start and find out who's on the, the wildlife action group. All right. Yeah. There'll be a, a, a wildlife action group that meets with, with, um, Dwarp down there. Um, and they discuss things between legislation and, and how to, to implement systems and things like that. And they'll have a bit of a time frame as to when the licensing is going to be re next revised. Yeah. I would be starting to put together things now are starting to organise evidence now to say, right, I want to keep X and this is why there's this many of this species in South Australia, there's this many of this species in New South Wales, in Queensland, this is how you care for it, it's not a risk, da 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 yep. Put together a really good case and then, and then if it doesn't get through, then you've got a reason to bitch and moan because you, you haven't been able to get them through because at least yeah. you've done the legwork. But it's all well and good to say, yeah, I want to keep Parentes or I want to keep Alan Pellies. That's that's fine. Um, when you see the size enclosures that you need to build and the cost that's involved, um, it's it's not so simple. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what else have we got on this list? I think that's pretty much it for my list, to be honest. Questions always. No worries. Um, right. Yeah, I think that's about it. Unless sure. the chat right. has any questions. Here we go. Um, Nick said, uh, how much easier would it be if it was a nationwide system just instead of the states? Well, Nick, if you watch uh, earlier on, we did discuss that in a bit more detail as well. Well, I think... I think a national system would be better for everybody. It means that everyone's working under the same, same guidelines um, and same systems, and mm. you know collectively they can work together to 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 improve those systems. At least you're dealing with one as opposed to to multiple. Yeah. And um, one, I think one final question that I've got is, um, when is the uh, estimated uh, release date for the uh, Python's book? Out uh, snakes book, I mean. Snakes book. Um, well, it's gone back to the publishers. All I expect it'll be somewhere 
around the middle of the year at some point in time. I, I don't think it'll be June. June's probably getting a bit close. I'd say it'll be July-ish, maybe. I, I don't know yet. Yeah. But as soon as I know, it'll be all up on Nature for you. So, you know, the people, they, if they sort of uh, follow the Nature for You page, then they'll, they'll know that's where it's going to be released first anyway. Yeah. And um, for those that are wondering, where would you be able to find the different books that you've written and the Nature for You, uh, I guess, products and things like that? Yeah, so our website is, is www.wildlifedemonstrations.com. Um, if you go to that website, you can get us there. Otherwise, uh, the Nature for You page on Facebook is the, is the other place to get us. Um, I basically have Facebook deleted off my phone. Um, I find it's too fucking too time consuming. Um, it's too easy to get to get get assigned to get get um, sidetracked dealing with bullshit. Um, so. I've, I've got rid of it off my phone and I'm, I tend to be a lot happier about it. So, um, but you know, I do check it sort of sporadically. Um, if people want to get in contact with me, they can shoot me a message or, or pick up the phone, give me a call, whatever. I'm, I'm not too hard to find. Yeah. And, um, I think we've got, well, there's one question from Stewie, but I think Stewie, you might have to message him about that one. That'll be a long story. Um, I'd assume, and you guys would have a good chat about that one. And, Dealings with Hoser. Um, the other question. Oh, I'm not, I'm not even. Nah, I'm not going <laughs> to even go down that road. Yeah. So don't bother um, sending me a message because I won't respond to, to shit about Hoser. There's, <laughs> there's, look, Ray's, Ray's a, a very, very interesting person that's done a lot for herpetology for, for many years in this country. Um, but things seem to have gone a bit of a awry. Um, mm. I'm not really going. I'm not going to go any further into it. I'm not going to bag the guy. There's, there's no point. There's plenty of people that, that have a go at him. I don't see that as being productive. Um, yeah. I don't see that as being a, a way to, to, to deal with, with issues. Um, yeah. And so I'd rather, rather leave that off to the side. I know plenty of people in Victoria have got lots of issues with, with him. Um, yeah. Plenty of people around the world have got issues with him. But people have got issues with people all over the world. It mm. doesn't, doesn't really do anything to help. Yeah. Um, the other question that we've got is um, what advice do you give to people just starting out with reptiles? Read and enjoy it. Try not to get too disheartened. Um, there's lots of people that think they know lots and lots about reptiles and you know, I, I, I suppose I'll, I'll leave it on, on this point, is that I know fuck all about reptiles. I know absolutely bugger all about reptiles. All right? When I was new and I first started keeping reptiles, I thought I, thought I knew a little bit, and, and you know, I was open to, open to learning. After about keeping reptiles for about five years or so, I started to think that I knew a fair bit, and I was giving people advice, and I knew a lot, and I thought I knew heaps. After keeping reptiles for 10 years, I thought I knew heaps on lots and lots and lots. You know, I'll be the first person to jump in and go, oh, no, you do it like this. You do it like that. And I reckon it was probably 15 or 16 years ago now, I started to realise that I didn't quite know quite as much as what I thought I did. And 
you know, I've been keeping reptiles now for, for over 30 years. And to this day, I'm still learning new things. Mm. Okay, so if I'm still learning things, then and I'm always learning new things, then at the end of the day, why am I going to pretend that I, I know everything? That's, that's just rubbish. Mm. The, the, the best thing that people can do is, is to go into to keeping animals with an open mind. And if somebody has a different way of doing something, that doesn't mean to say it's wrong. That means that you've got a different way. You might be able to learn from that. You know, I can learn from somebody who's been keeping reptiles for six weeks, six mm. minutes. Hasn't been keeping reptiles at all. I can learn from them because they look at things through a different way. They don't have a, a rose-coloured glasses that are, are suggesting that things should be like this and you keep animals like this and this is how you do it. No. There's other ways to do things. And so the minute that the more people are receptive to learning is the more that they are they're willing to learn. Yeah. And there's, there's always new things that are out there. We always learn new things. Mm. You know, I suppose stop pretending that we know everything and start realising that we don't know that much. Yeah. I think that's a good point to finish off on that one. Um, all right, thank mate. you, Scott, no for well. all your time. Um, no, that's all right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully someone's got something out of it. Yeah, so. I know. I certainly did. Um, thank you there for you go. that. Well, it's been worthwhile. No worries. Um, I hope everybody yeah. else has enjoyed it as well. No worries. Well, look, if, if anyone's got any questions or anything like that, I'm always happy to answer them. So, um, and, and we can go from there, right? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. See All you right. Happy days. Have a good one. Yeah. Wow. How about those last sentiments there? I mean, honestly. Scott is such a wealth of knowledge and the, the point there about, you know, how much do we really know is just a fantastic sentiment. Um, definitely, if you want to see more of what Scott and uh, his wife Ty get up to, definitely give Nature For You a follow on uh, all of their social media platforms. Um, it's a fantastic resource and I'm sure both of them are happy to talk about anything reptile related if you have any questions uh, I'm sure, I know for myself, they've been a fantastic help uh, over the years as well. Um, so this is the another one of the throwback episodes. Um, hope you have enjoyed. Uh, if you want to see the shenanigans that Dane and myself get up to, uh, Blue Horizon Reptiles is where you can find Dane. Or if you want to see what I get up to, uh, Josh's Aussie Reptiles on all your platforms. Hope you've enjoyed and hope you're all keeping safe. Thanks very much and see you next time.